Hello, Sky Watchers. Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Patricia. And I'm Greg. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in October in our Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Dark skies at the beginning of the month provide the perfect opportunity to have a look at some galaxies. Our own galaxy, the Milky Way, is home to around 200 to 400 billion stars and arches across the night sky. The Milky Way is one member of a group of galaxies known as the Local Group. Two other members of this group, the Andromeda Galaxy and the Triangulum Galaxy, soar high in the sky around midnight and can be spotted with the unaided eye under clear and dark skies. However, if you live near a city, grab a pair of binoculars or a telescope for the best views of these distant galaxies. The Andromeda Galaxy is the largest galaxy in the Local Group followed by our own galaxy and then the Triangulum Galaxy. The Milky Way Galaxy is on a collision course with the Andromeda Galaxy and the two will merge in a few billion years time to film Milkdromeda. The Triangulum Galaxy, which is suspected to be a satellite galaxy of the Andromeda Galaxy, might miss the initial cosmic collision but could end up merging with Milkdromeda. Asterisms are easy to recognise patterns of stars, with the Plough, or Big Dipper, perhaps the most well-known asterism in the night sky. Hidden inside the constellation Camelopardalis is an asterism known as Kemble's Cascade. Containing around 20 faint stars nearly in a row, Kemble's Cascade stretches over five times the width of a full moon. With a pair of binoculars or a telescope, you'll be able to see the full extent of this asterism. To locate it, start at the W-shaped constellation Cassiopeia. Draw an imaginary line from Beta Cassiopeia, the second brightest star in the constellation, through Epsilon Cassiopeia, the fifth brightest, and then extend this line by the same distance and you'll find the asterism. Try to spot the two orange-coloured stars in this colourful stellar cascade. Under dark sky conditions, you might be able to see NGC 1502, an open star cluster lying at the end of the cascade. The moon is the perfect celestial tour guide this month and will helpfully point out some planets to see. On the evening of October 3rd, you'll spot the largest planet of our solar system, Jupiter, lying to the bottom left of a waxing crescent moon. Two nights later, on October 5th, Look to the top left of the first quarter moon to catch a glimpse of the ringed planet Saturn. For a challenge, shortly after sunset on October 30th, look towards the southwest and find the slender waxing crescent moon. Grab a pair of binoculars and trace a line from the bottom horn of the crescent moon towards the horizon and you should be able to spot Venus. New moon occurs on October 28th which provides optimal viewing conditions to look at Uranus, which reaches opposition on the same day. Uranus will be at its brightest, so if you're up for the challenge, try to spot the planet with the unaided eye. 
Halley's Comet is responsible for producing the Orionids meteor shower, which peaks on the night of the 21st and early morning of the 22nd of October. The radiant of the meteor shower lies in the constellation Orion, which is where the name for the meteor shower originates from. As Halley's Comet follows its path around our Sun, a trail of cometary debris is left behind. As the Earth passes through this debris trail, bits of comet collide with our atmosphere, producing fiery streaks across the sky. Under optimal viewing conditions, observers would be able to see around 15 meteors per hour. Unfortunately, observers will have to contend with the light from a last quarter moon, so for your best chance to spot some meteors, head to a dark sky location and aim your gaze about 45 degrees away from the constellation Orion. And don't forget that October 27th marks the end of British summertime, with our clocks going back by an hour, so don't forget to change your clocks. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. So welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. Each month, Patricia and I come up with uh, a new story that's broken in the last month that we want to tell you more about. And then you get the chance to vote on your favorite on our Twitter poll at ROG Astronomers. So Patricia, what do you have for us this month? Well, this month's story is all about cosmic collisions. Oh. So on August 7th this year, amateur astronomer Ethan Chappell was busy capturing some video of Jupiter using a small telescope in his backyard in the US. And once he had obtained some footage, he fit it through some software which is designed to specifically detect impact flashes. And while he was going through his observations, he spotted a discernible flash lasting around one and a half seconds along Jupiter's south equatorial belt. So what he did was he posted the images and video on social media and it quite quickly spread and many people agreed that what he had managed to capture was an impact on Jupiter. And what had happened was they had asked if anybody else had been observing Jupiter at the same time because obviously if you've seen it, you'd like to have someone else's observations to confirm it. At the moment, no one else has come forward with any other footage, but scientists have been analyzing his footage and they've now confirmed that it was indeed an impact and that the impactor was most likely a small asteroid and it was estimated to release an energy equivalent to an explosion of 240 kilotons of TNT. And just a day ago, actually, um, at the time of recording, NASA have announced that they're going to be building a space-based telescope, um, which is going to focus on asteroid hunting as part of their multi-pronged approach to planetary defense. Because there are lots of space rocks out there. Some are small and harmless, but others are large and would could cause worldwide destruction if they did hit the Earth. And one of the reasons why space agencies are investing so much money in these sort of planetary defense programs is because of another event that involved Jupiter. Now, being the largest planet in our solar system, Jupiter's 
strong gravitational field means that it attracts a lot more space rocks than the Earth does, which means that it tends to get hit by quite a lot of space rocks compared to the Earth. And sometimes it's not just asteroids that smash into Jupiter. Because 25 years ago, in July 1994, telescopes around the world were trained on Jupiter to observe the first ever cosmic collision between a comet and a planet, because the world watched as comet Schumacher-Levy 9 smashed into Jupiter. And there was one spacecraft that was in a good position to witness this event take place, and that was the Galileo spacecraft that was launched 30 years ago in October this year. So 1989, that was when Galileo began its intrepid journey out to Jupiter. Now, I should point out at this stage that when Galileo launched, no one knew this event was yeah. going to happen. Absolutely. It was not part of the mission plan. It was just, we're just going to Jupiter. There was nothing involving cosmic collisions. And that was because the comet was only discovered in March of 1993. And it was discovered by U.S. comet hunters Eugene and Caroline Schumacher and astronomer David Levy. And they looked at all the observations that they got and they analyzed the orbit of this comet. And it turned out that the comet was not in orbit around the sun. It was in orbit around Jupiter. And when they had a look at some of their other images that they had taken, they were looking at the nucleus of the comet and it suggested that it had multiple nuclei. Now, usually comets generally just tend to have one main body, but this specifically looked like it had multiple nuclei. And when they had a look again at the orbit of this comet, they realized that in 1992, the comet had passed really close to Jupiter. It's only around 40,000 kilometers above Jupiter's atmosphere. And because it passed so close to Jupiter, Jupiter's gravity just ripped the comet apart into fragments. And there's actually a fantastic Hubble Space Telescope image showing these fragments um, of this comet. So if you've never seen it, certainly have a look on the internet and you'll, you'll see this amazing image. And they realized that this comet was on a collision course with Jupiter. And the collision was expected in mid-July 19. 94. So if you consider when it was discovered, they had about a year and a bit before it was going to, to collide with the planet. And of course, because this would be the first observable collision between two objects of our solar system, between a comet and a planet, everyone wanted to observe the event. And there were a number of observing campaigns that were planned. Now, Galileo was over 200 million kilometers away from Jupiter when the impacts began on the 16th of July. It's a lot closer than we are to, to Jupiter, and it managed to capture images of the impact. So we had all the telescopes here on the Earth. We even had the Hubble Space Telescope having a look at this, plus we had the Galileo spacecraft. And the entire world watched as this string of cometary fragments smashed into Jupiter with a force of around 300 million atomic bombs. And huge plumes around 2,000 to 3,000 kilometers high were produced during these impacts, and they heated Jupiter's atmosphere to temperatures in the region of 30 to 40,000 degrees Celsius. Pretty hot. So, a bit hot. Yeah, that's just, just a bit hot. Yeah, it's much hotter than the surface of the sun. Yeah, yeah. So um, you can, it's a good thing no one was there at the time, it wouldn't have been pleasant 
to be at Jupiter during this event. To be fair, it isn't usually pleasant on Jupiter. No, no, but this, this would have added a, an extra An extra of, bit, yeah. 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 Um, by July 22nd, the impacts have finally ended. So we started on July 16th and they only ended oh, that's, on that's July 22nd. And images returned by the Hubble Space Telescope actually showed these dark ringed scars that had been produced as a result of the impacts of these cometary fragments. And this was a great thing as well because it meant that here from the Earth they could use all the telescopes to monitor how these features changed over time. And eventually they disappeared as a result of the movement of the winds on Jupiter. They managed to clear up these impact scars. And again, if you've never seen them, certainly do have a look at them. They're very impressive. And the collisions also left quite a bit of dust floating around in the atmosphere of Jupiter. And because of that, scientists here from the Earth could finally track how, how high altitude winds on Jupiter move for the very first time, just by watching how this dust was moving about in the atmosphere of Jupiter. Now, after witnessing this cosmic collision, uh, Galileo, of course, continued on to Jupiter, and that mission itself turned out to be very successful and was extended on a number of occasions. So in addition to observing this not planned cometary impact, Galileo had a number of achievements, including, but not limited to, returning the first ever close-up image of the surface of an asteroid. That was a Galileo achievement. It discovered the first asteroid moon, because Galileo mm -hmm. ended up going quite close to asteroid Ida and took a picture of it and spotted a little dactyl in orbit mm -hmm. around the asteroid. Galileo was also the first spacecraft to go into orbit at an outer planet. No other spacecraft had done that because as you, when you spoke about the Voyager missions, they were, of course, flyby missions Indeed. as well. Yep. And it was Galileo's observations of Europa that suggested that there was this global ocean of liquid water lurking beneath that icy shell. So Gal the Galileo mission actually scored a number of um, amazing achievements. And um, But then in this kind of little fitting circle of events from being an observer of an impact of Jupiter, Galileo itself would become an impactor. Mm. Yes. Because without sufficient fuel to leave Jupiter and to avoid potentially contaminating Europa, Galileo intentionally crashed into Jupiter in September 2003 and ending an epic 14-year mission. Which is amazing considering that its primary mission was only scheduled to be two years. Yeah, right. And it was extended so many times because it was just that successful. Um, so both comets Schumacher-Levy 9 and Galileo had legacies. And the impact between comets Schumacher-Levy 9 and Jupiter actually forced space agencies to commit themselves to setting up programs to monitor the skies and detect objects that are potentially hazardous to the Earth. Because I think there was a bit of complacency. We knew there were space shocks about, but it was witnessing the event that really pushed agencies to go, hey, we need to do something about this. Because when they sort of modeled an impact between that comet and the Earth, the results were devastating. And 
that's partly why they set up these missions to monitor the night sky. So we have a couple of things like linear, which is also tracking all of the asteroids. But also um, agencies are working on plans on how to deal with objects if we know they're heading our way. And that's one example of something that you spoke about in a podcast, which is NASA's dark mission. So mm -hmm. if we know something's heading our way, what are we going to do about it? And I think Comet Schumacher-Levy 9 sort of really showed that it can be a really close call. That within finding something, you might only have 14 months after finding it to come up with a plan if you know something's on a collision course with the Earth. Um, as for Galileo, dates obtained during the mission are actually still being used today. And its mission success has paved the way for the Juno mission currently in orbit around Jupiter, as well as for the upcoming missions to Jupiter's moons, namely JUICE and Europa Clipper. So Galileo is still giving us so much information. And I know all of this has been a bit doom and gloom, mm -hmm. um, but remember that not all cosmic collisions are bad. <laughs> because when you're out and about enjoying the Orionids meteor shower this month, you can thank Cosmic Collisions for the spectacular sight that you'll be seeing up in the sky, provided there are no clouds. Yeah, yes, absolutely. We're, weather permitting. Yeah. Weather permitting. <laughs> yeah. So, takeaway, not all Cosmic Collisions are bad. Some are bad, some are very bad, <laughs> but they're not all bad. Definitely something to bear in mind. Uh, an excellent story there, Patricia. Uh, so, uh, this month, I'm going to be talking to you about an exciting discovery in exoplanet astronomy. Um, specifically, the discovery of water uh, in a habitable zone planet. Now, before we get too excited, there are big caveats attached to what I just said, and the planet might not be as habitable as we would like. There's a lot of disagreement in the scientific community at the moment about whether it truly could be or not. We'll talk about that in a little while. But the planet in question is planet K218b. Uh, another one of these telephone number uh, names. Um, the K2 part tells you the name of the mission that found it. This was the Kepler Extended Mission. Um, Kepler was a, a satellite determined uh, to find planets through something called the transit method by looking for um, uh, planets that pass in front of their parent star and produce a slight dip in the light coming from that star, at least from the point of view of us here on Earth. Um, the original Kepler mission uh, broke in 2013 um, when one of its reaction wheels uh, unfortunately malfunctioned. Uh, this was a year after another of its, mal uh, of its uh, reaction wheels had malfunctioned as well, leaving it with only two. Two reaction wheels unfortunately is not enough to point yourself in any particular uh, specific direction in space. You need at least three. Um, and that meant that effectively the mission should have come to an end. However, this resulted in one of my favorite engineering solutions that has ever been produced. Um, Kepler was surrounded by a set of solar panels that were arranged in uh, around the, the barrel of the telescope. Um, and the important part was that these solar panels were uh, symmetrically arranged so that uh, engineers realized that if they pointed the solar panels directly at the sun in such a way that the, the light coming onto those panels would balance out on either side, 
then it would actually stay like that, like a, a pencil balanced on the end of your finger. Um, it wouldn't uh, twist one way or the other, or roll, as it would be called for this particular uh, arrangement. Um, so they were literally using the tiny amount of pressure that comes from light um, to balance this telescope, uh, which allowed it to point at uh, certain regions of the sky for about 80-odd days, something along those lines, before they would have to move the telescope onto a new part of the sky. Nowhere near as long as the, the long stairs that Kepler used to manage, but still pretty good. This K2 mission, the extended Kepler mission, produced many more planets on top of what Kepler already had, um, and one of them was K218b. K218b uh, is 111 light years from Earth, so relatively close by in the grand scheme of our galaxy, but not exactly next door either. Um, it is two and a half times as wide as the Earth, and it's about eight times as massive, by which I mean eight times as much mass. Um, so far, so not Earth-like, let's be honest. Um, it's also on a 33-day orbit, so its year is only 33 wow. days long, uh, 33 Earth days, I should say, um, and it's closer to its star than Mercury is to our sun by quite a way. Again, doesn't sound particularly yeah. Earth-like, but it is orbiting around a red dwarf star, a relatively small, uh, relatively cool, faint star. And that means that the habitable zone, the region where uh, water could potentially um, be in its liquid state on a planet, assuming there's enough atmospheric pressure, uh, is much, much closer to the star than it is for our own sun, which is much bigger, much brighter, much hotter. It means that K218b is on the inner edge, but certainly within the realms of the habitable zone for its, uh, for its star. And so its temperatures are potentially quite similar to Earth's. Um, reasonable ranges of the temperatures that might be found on that planet are something between about minus 50 degrees Celsius and, uh, sorry, minus 80 degrees Celsius and 50 degrees Celsius, positive 50. Um, which sounds, those two temperatures sound awful, but those temperatures are recorded here on Earth. In Antarctica, it can easily get down to minus 80. In the hottest deserts of, of Africa and certain parts of America and uh, etc., it can easily get up to 50. So this is, so far, looking like a reasonably habitable planet. What's more, two groups of astronomers, one led by uh, Bjorn Benek from the University of Montreal, um, and the other led by uh, Angelos uh, Ziaras, of UCL, they both studied some Hubble data taken of the um, planet and determined that there was actually water in the atmosphere of this planet. Now, the, the method that they used is simple in theory, but very, very difficult to do in practice. Basically, it works like this. Uh, solid ground, rocky ground, icy ground, blocks light basically entirely. So nothing is basically getting through the planet. Um, but an atmosphere around that planet will be at least partially transparent. So imagine the Earth transiting across the sun, so passing in front of the sun, but viewed from a really, really long way away. 
X-rays would be blocked by the atmosphere almost entirely. Uh, but the visible light will mostly be unperturbed. It will get through relatively easily. That means that the Earth will actually look about 200 kilometers wider in X-rays than it will in visible light because the atmosphere around the outside, which is about 100 kilometers wide on each side of the Earth, will add an extra 200 kilometers to the apparent size of the Earth. Their method was similar, but instead used uh, visible light and infrared light, um, comparing the different sizes that the transit appeared to be, the different transit depths. And in infrared light, there is an absorption feature from water. So this is one of these uh, barcodes, these chemical identifiers that tell us that there is water in this atmosphere. If it absorbs this specific type, this specific colour of light, then there's a good chance there's water there. Both groups, uh, both universities found this signal. Um, the first, this is the first planet um, in the habitable zone which has detected water around it. Um, and one paper even discusses the likelihood of an actual water cycle, so rain, condensation, and then uh, uh, evaporation again. So, so far, it's looking really good. However, the planet is very big. Uh, it's on the boundary, if we're honest, between what you might refer to as a super-Earth, which is anything up to about twice the size of the planet Earth, and to a mini-Neptune, which is, well, anything about down to two times the size of the Earth. This is about two and a half. So it's pretty close to that boundary, possibly pushing towards the mini-Neptune side. Both groups also showed that the atmosphere, while having water in it, was probably mostly made out of things like hydrogen and helium, which is very similar to the gas giant planets in our solar system. In fact, it's uncomfortably close to the composition of the gas giant planets in our solar system. Now, this probably isn't a simple gas giant planet because the density doesn't work. It's too dense to be just a gas giant. But one thing that's quite likely is that then it might be a rocky planet, sizable rocky planet, but with a really thick gaseous atmosphere around it. Um, in fact, believe it or not, the fact that we were able to detect the atmosphere at all is a very bad sign. Because the signal from this water line, or from any of the lines that are used in this sort of analysis, they're very, very subtle. And in a thin atmosphere, they'd be practically undetectable with modern day instrumentation. So in this case, because we've actually detected the atmosphere, it's a sign that the atmosphere must have been very, very thick indeed, um, to have a big difference between uh, the light that can pass through the atmosphere and the light that is affected slightly by it. So, is K218b habitable? Well, coming from a person for whom exoplanet science is not necessarily their field, probably not, with caveats. It's possible. It is absolutely possible that it could be a habitable planet. Um, but the fact 
that it appears to have this very thick atmosphere, which is likely very, very bad for life. High pressure environments are not likely to be particularly good for, um, for life to exist. Suggests that while water is a good sign, the temperatures are potentially a good sign too. The atmosphere is not going to be great for it. However, that doesn't mean that this isn't an exciting result. It absolutely is. This is the first time that we've had a well-analyzed water-laden atmosphere around a, inverted commas, small planet. All of the other cases, with the exception of a couple of super-Earths, have been around uh, large gas giant planets. Um, and even though the next step on James Webb Space Telescope might not yet be enough to see the truly thin atmospheres that we want to see, with technology continuing to improve one day, hopefully before too long, we will see a thin water atmosphere around uh, an exoplanet. I think what's great about this as well is that it, it highlights the difficulty in this type of work that you're trying to figure out the atmospheric composition of a planet that's a very, very, very far away away from us and that we will always take caution and even when papers are published you're going to have other authors who are going to look at the results, they will disagree with the results, they will do their own analysis of it but it's how we have to do things. We have to be very cautious with what we say, especially because I think for most people, when the minute they hear Earth-like planet, they picture the Earth. Earth yeah. And that's a problem. Yeah. And um, I think that's what's great about this, is that we're highlighting that this is a great you know, achievement, being able to detect the signal. But, and then as you say, <laughs> have all, we have to have a couple of buts associated with it. Otherwise, people just... You know, they'll get the wrong impression, but as I say, it, it does highlight that difficulty that we face in, yeah. in studying exoplanets. Absolutely. So there you have it, two new news stories for you to choose between and vote on our Twitter poll. So last month we had the 30th anniversary of Voyager's flyby of Neptune and all that has gone into that particular mission. Um, and we also had the uh, Patricia talking about the study of an anemic star, a star with very low iron and very low metals in it. With 69% of the vote, uh, I'm afraid the Voyager 2 mission did win that one out, so commiserations to Patricia there. You'll have your chance now to vote on these two new stories uh, on our Twitter feed at ROG Astronomers. We very much hope you'll join us next month for more from Look Up. Mm -hmm.